0: Hey, Dad, what's going to happen to me when you get a divorce? Why, you get custody yourself, I guess. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the thoughts to give about actor Dennis Quaid and the only podcast to reach maximum Quaid. That's right. If you were to ask how much more Quaid you could put in this podcast, the answer would be none, none more Quaid. I am Jeb Lund, co-host and Quaid De Camp of your other co-host, the chairperson emeritus of the Quaidology Department at the Correspondence College of Houston, Sarah D. Bunting. Hello. How are you doing?
1: Um, good. I think we're going to struggle to match Quaid De Camp in the rest of this podcast, <laughs> but uh, I'm feeling feisty. Let's see what, see what
0: happens. I had to do it. It was right there. Yeah. I, if, if I overdue. didn't take it, I was going to kick myself. Speaking of, it's right there and one of us is going to have to do it. Have you experienced the Renaissance yet?
1: I have not. I have not
0: flowered into the Renaissance. and yourself. I had to take a nearly nine-hour round-trip drive the other day to pick up a dog that I was adopting, and I had all of that podcast time, and somehow I found a way to listen to basically everything but... (laughs) I was just going down the to-do list of, you know, this person, friend of mine, started doing this, you should probably listen so I can say, hey, good job, and make him feel good. And, and it was there. It was there on the phone. Yeah. I mean, I was tempted. And yet, finger hovered. you're listening
1: to CBC Quebec. You're like, I don't know what's being said, but, but that's still preferable. An extremely
0: specific Nova Scotian true crime story that <laughs> I would have no hope of knowing <laughs> in my personal life. But I'm like, I got to get to the bottom of this.
1: There is a joke here about if it were a Newfoundland crime story, it would be an extremely short podcast because they're so dumb. <laughs> but uh, I don't I don't think I get
0: to make that joke because I'm not I'm not a new myself. There's only so many provinces we can afford to lose out yeah. of the audience. So we got to I mean, as long as we're picking like the less populous ones, that's probably fine, but we can't afford to lose Ontario. That's true. All right. So I guess we should just get to the movie uh, we watched for this one, 1981's all Night Long, a movie so ruinous to the concept of anything that lasts all night long that two years later, Lionel Richie had to release a song to try to banish its memory from the earth. Thank God. It's true. Yeah. Just to run the numbers on this, since we already did the, the date, it cost $14 million and only recouped $4 million globally, which suggests that if you haven't heard of All Night Long, don't worry about it. You are in very, very good company. And perhaps
1: that is purposeful. Uh, on the part of someone who was in the cast whose
0: name rhymes with schmeizand. we'll get to it could be uh could also be i mean it's not it's not going to be a gorp situation it's not like the distributor just vanished although maybe it did eventually like i didn't check is it orion or tristar you know
1: no this is one of those that um is only on dvd which is like about where you're at i'm not sure who that distributor thinks is going to be seeking out or watching this but it's it's not people of
0: streaming age the cast is not this is not a a youth oriented cast our protagonist is george dupler played by gene hackman a chain pharmacy executive who responds Um, to a. it's dupler (laughs) well whatever
1: Well, this is what passes for a running
0: gag in the movie. I had to point it out. I'm not going to say I deliberately left that there, but I was worried that there weren't going to be enough diegetic jokes that I... (laughs) And we've hit the limit on that already. Boy. It was a great podcast. Giving it a three. Let's go. (laughs) Bye-bye. He responds to a downgrade in status by throwing a chair through an office window and is subsequently further downgraded to night manager of one of his company's pharmacies where sub Court and sub-Barney Miller hijinks ensue. Mm-hmm. Following his outburst, uh, we follow George into his middle-class melancholy uh, with his dull homemaker wife, Helen, played by Diane Ladd, his hormonally oafish himbo son, Freddie, played by Dennis Quaid. Hello. <laughs> and almost from the jump, we see George discover that Freddie is having an affair with a distant cousin, a lonely firefighter's wife named Cheryl, portrayed by the commemorative plate herself, Barbara Streisand. George succeeds in breaking up Freddie and Cheryl, only to find that Cheryl is now sweet on him. Their nascent, hardly emotional and definitely not even physical affair at this point alienates Freddy. He tells mom that leads Helen to file for divorce and leads George to sever the tethers of middle-class mediocrity, keeping him from reaching self-actualization. Leases a 4,000-square-foot warehouse floor basically seizes Cheryl from her husband like a Trojan prize and becomes an inventor. All of the things we could still do in America in 1981. So, how'd you feel about it?
1: How did I feel about it? I didn't feel much of anything about it. It. Well, shall we get into some contemporary reviews, because those sort of encapsulate anything that I would say better than I can? Yeah, please do. All right, well, uh, here is um, the late... Great. Roger Ebert, part of his review, most of which, like, if I had to boil it down to five words, it's him, like, being a shrug emoji and being like, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> quote, This might have somehow been made into a farce, but the director keeps losing the pace. Scenes begin with the promise of fireworks and end with the characters at a loss for words. You also know a movie's in trouble when it has the heroine ride a motor scooter just to make her seem like more of a character. End quote. That's pretty much where I was at, but uh, let's go over to Mitch at Video Vacuum. This was not a contemporary review, but those were thin on the ground with good reason. Yeah. Quote, all night long is one of those silly comedies filled with sitcomish style complications where everything could have been straightened out if people just took two minutes to explain themselves. Uh, parenthetical, this is what Mr. Ebert would have called an idiot plot, and I totally agree. Instead, they foolishly just allowed the situation to escalate. Seriously, all of the shit in this movie was probably part of a Three's Company episode at some point in time. This flick had a rocky production. Lisa Icorn was originally cast in the lead and was eventually fired and replaced with Streisand. Once she entered the picture, the film was ex- extensively rewritten for her. I think a lot of that off-screen tension probably translated on screen as the scenes with Streisand have a different feel. Sometimes it feels like a quirky comedy, and other times it seems curiously lifeless too." End quote. Just a casting note here, Lisa Eichhorn I think is probably best known from Cutter's Way, but I remember her as uh, playing in a fairly famous episode of Law & Order, Mary Kostrinsky. She's represented by Elaine Stritch in this episode. Mm-hmm. She's bad. She's not good at acting, at least in anything I've ever seen her in. She definitely is one of those like early 90s TV, hey, it's that guy guest stars. As inert as this movie is already, I cannot imagine the just slog it would have been without Stryzan's nails to look at. Like, does she have chemistry with either of the. Father or son that she's supposed to be irresistibly boning, no, in my opinion, although she is a commemorative plate and asking streisand to have chemistry with anyone is like asking I don't even know the Santa Anas to have chemistry with anyone. It's like that's not how that works, but with icorn in this role this this really would have been maybe not torture, but something next door to torture like a couple cell blocks over from torture. It just doesn't know what it wants to be. I kept seeing glimpses of a movie that would be entertaining. You mentioned Night Court. Like, sure, make it about this Ultra Saves Night Shift. I'll watch that. Make it about the production line of hotel art being created by what appear to be Asian immigrants in the
0: like lobby or downstairs of his loft building there's so many weird scenes in this and that is one of the weirdest because you don't know why maybe you do but like he's going through a warehouse and suddenly there's a room with like 40 koreans and they're they're mentioned as being koreans but for some reason they're all painting like the exact same painting of uh mount fuji yeah Basically,
1: like, I have no idea if I'm correct that it that's like an assembly line output situation. But then in the foreground of one shot for like two seconds, there's one guy just sort of grimly glopping gray paint onto a downslope. And it's like, there's a novella in that guy. And I would way rather read that novella, even in the original Korean, which I don't read, than watch another five minutes of this trying to be
0: sassy I just—it it feels less like a movie than a collection of faints at other movies. That, and it wants—it keeps opening the door to those other movies, but it doesn't have the conviction to I, walk yeah, through the door, or it wants to agree. remain in this antechamber where it has access to all of them. Because you kind of have a slapstick class or underclass comedy in the setting of the pharmacy, uh-huh. and then you have the—I think—an attempt at sort of like a knowing maybe European style sex comedy Mm -hmm. about the suburbs. And then there's the kind of midlife crisis coming of age comedy slash story. I don't know if it's funny for both uh, for both George and Cheryl. And it's intelligent enough to know all the tropes and signifiers of all of those, but that's all it ultimately gives us is like the tropes. And then you're, I guess, supposed to fill in the blanks of what would make any of those like a fully satisfying plot on your own. But you know, that that's the movie's job. Spot on. Like, I got hints of,
1: like, this could have turned into the following movies. After Hours, Down and mm. Out in Beverly Hills, mm. Mr. Mom, Finnegan Begin Again. Like, n- none of these movies are, like, After Hours, your mileage may vary. I don't think that's a great movie, but it's very good and memorable. Mr. Mom has a raffish energy to it that I always enjoyed when I was watching it on cable for the millionth time in a week because it was one of those.
0: Yeah, and just the the, the washer scene alone. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right? And then all the playing poker and drinking at like eleven in the morning with the soaps on. Like, I'm I'm pretty sure that was a documentary. That part, that's fine. This felt like it was being so careful and like trying not to breathe lest it lose babs somehow. And I just didn't buy her. Like, I think she's supposed to be some kind of breathless Mahoney spirit, but I didn't buy that either because it's like, you're too famous for this now. Like you don't get to do this anymore.
0: You know, I'd I'd like to defer again to Mr. Ebert. He had a quote here that I think underlines some of what's uh, bad about her role. He says, maybe I was wrong. Surely it wasn't Streisand's idea to play her character as a quiet, vacant-minded non-entity. Here's one of our most powerful personalities in movie history, and she doesn't have a single scene where she lets loose. She's almost intimidated by the clothes she wears. And I think that's a good observation. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with it because I was thinking about... I wondered what drew her to the role, and I I believe I also read that it had been substantially rewritten uh, before I didn't read that review that you quoted, but if it was, I'm not sure what the aim was, and if I were just to sort of evaluate this sight unseen the way I would evaluate any acting performance, it feels a lot like what a lot of smart, privileged, educated, cultured people play when they're playing trashy people yeah, credulous, unself-aware. and it's it's almost like they hope that if the performance seems bovine or unself-consciously tacky enough, people will see like a wholesome realness to it and let it shine through because like being dumb scans is real while having an understanding of forces acting on you and relating to them with agency is inauthentic. It's eggheaded. it's unemotional. And so, like, instead of investing this character with any agency or wit, she simultaneously is, like, the sex object for George and a pity object for the audience. Like, you know, you want to fuck him, but you don't want to be him, you know, because she's, like, at best, she becomes manic pixie dream housewife. The trap songbird who wants to fuck first and then find herself later, but she can do that underneath your wing. You know, I don't know. It's just, like, it's such a patronizing role at its best. And it it does seem like the kind of calculation
1: that someone at Streisand's level of fame and uh, influence, even by this point, like this is where that algebra comes out for her is to make herself less formidable and more relatable. But this route to doing that, first of all, is not like, that's not the route. And second of all, Again, your limo is too big for that road. So, sorry. Like I I understand the instinct, and I think that particularly for a woman who, you know, a number of these reviews were like, Streisand's famously demanding production notes, like, just call her a controlling bitch. That's what you mean. It could be true. I don't know. But I think there is a strong whiff here of her trying to roll the clock back to funny girl or whatever it was where she was not like the brand was not emasculation as much as she might've thought it was at this point.
0: I guess I can't leave aside the image of, you know, when she's playing her piano and angering her husband because he wants to recreate some battlefield in model scale. If you just replace the songs she was singing with common people. Like I, that's how I feel about her in this role. Yeah,
1: I mean it's a shame because on the flip side, like I think that her role is just like misconceived. It's the sort of like, <laughs> how do you do, young people? Like, but the <laughs> but the uh, sort of like ditzy free spirit of it compared to like an eighties Sarah Jessica Parker role or romey and michelle's where it actually comes from some experiential place but then on the flip side Gene hackman i like i buy it i'm interested in yeah in him and there there are moments in the script that are just like sort of weird and uhfe slash better off daddy like just these moments of surreal. things happening in the background that it's like we're clearly supposed to notice them but then it never pays off um you cut a clip of one of these while the o fish himbo dennis quaid is uh lounging in front of the tv and his father stymied inventor george p.s this comes up like twice so it's not it can't be a character trait if the movie doesn't remember it he has rigged up the vacuum to work via like joystick remote control, which is what you hear at the end. Here's what's going on in the local news in the beginning. In
0: Los Angeles. Okay. A 23-year-old man was killed in his first day on the job as a tree trimmer. Telford Marcheson was killed when he sliced through his own safety belt with a chainsaw plunged 40 feet to his death, but at work high atop a royal palm, trimming off dead leaves. The supervisor said that Marcheson told him he had experience working at such heights, but apparently he didn't have enough. That's the news up to now. We'll be back at 11 o'clock.
1: Uh, I mean, okay. Show us his inventions. Give us a montage. 33 short films about
0: George Doppler's crackpot patent applications. That also would have given Diane Ladd, uh, Helen, her character, some kind of depth to play with, because she is just, I mean, it is like a cardboard cutout of the used to be hot, but has no personality and does nothing housewife. And then we have sort of, you know, these French lessons that she's taking that aggravate him. And it just looks like a shallow person spinning her wheels and wasting time. And if you'd at least kind of like festooned the, the, the countertops and the bookshelves with these little tinkering doodads he'd made toward which she was derisive. And that actually showed some ingenuity and inventiveness. Then, then there would be some explanation for why there's a gulf there as it is. We're just sort of expected to go like, Oh, well they've been you know married long enough to have an 18 year old kid. Of course they would hate each other.
1: Yeah. Or make it something that, you know, he's like Doc Brown and she tries to make toast and like, I don't even know what pops out of the toaster. Other toasters <laughs> just have some investment in the idea of these characters as people who exist for some other reason than to further the a plot that you didn't think through. I also wonder if the person who did the rewriting... Is the same person who did the initial writing because it, it feels like this palimpsest where this sort of very predictable marriage in these united states 1981 b movie got slapped on top of something much more interesting and bizarre like In clip three, he's just moved out of his house after taking a break while packing to move out to introduce himself to the French teacher who's wearing a Disco Mountain t-shirt. So this is what we're dealing with. (laughs) Here's how she sends him off. Clip six, actually. It's a shorty. The life is too short. The life is too short. So he gets to this squalid hellhole. Uh, and sees an ambulance taking someone out. And he's like, I need a place to live. So he is ushered into this long-term efficiency hotel room with all of the guy's shit still in it, which he then starts like eating and wearing the guy's clothes, I think. And uh, by way of explaining why the room is a disaster, here's the bell hop? Clip three
0: made sick spinal meningitis can't rely on nobody but yourself
1: I mean first of all that makes no sense but in a sort of compelling way in my opinion but second of all why would you give someone a line about spinal meningitis and not have George who is sort of leaning in a door frame jump away from contact with anything that's been touched Mm mm-hmm like, that that's how meningitis jokes are? Unless that wasn't a joke and we were supposed to meet her later. The other thing I might mention is that this movie is only 87 minutes long. Right. You feel every one of them in your ass, but it's pretty short. And it's like, was there a director's cut? Like, was there a Michael Chimino version of this where everything was
0: sort of explored to its logical conclusion? Or like the Terrence Malick version where... Because like all right, like in that spinal meningitis scene, like right after that, the the bellhop makes this like weaselly face while yeah. basically asking for money, and it looks awful. And then you watch George Hackman's there, and he's he's lifting up the blinds, and he looks out the window, and you hear a car crash outside. Uh huh. And like what is obviously a a like a severe accident that that is a large crash, and he just sort of closes the blinds and turns back, and like the ennui of well spinal meningitis and people are dying outside as he just sort of looks around like well how do i steal the clothes from the apache who is living here is i think what how he referred mm-hmm. to the uh, previous inhabitant like that is so bizarre like maybe you could have like in the cut you know the longer one like the five minute long terrence malick pans across his face as he's as he's thinking like the car crash so much had been shaped then I could feel the death in the room. You know, like just some weird monologue. Or why
1: not do a like extended cross-faded montage of him instead of tearing the place apart to find a bug, cleaning the whole place of bugs yeah. and just do a direct um, homage in the camera setups to the conversation. Because that's all I could think of, especially once I realized that the shape of the room roughly would allow you to do
0: this well they also did the callback to the ride of the valkyries helicopter scene in apocalypse now. yes they
1: did so it's not like they were afraid to make the references yeah it just
0: sucked at them i wonder how much the belgian director had an impact on that kind of flavor because there are these you know the, the spinal meningitis thing in the car crash or you know a guy killing himself the first day on the job As Dennis Quaid sitting there just stuffing his face on the sofa, like, oh, word up, that guy's dead. Like there, there is this like existentially horrifying undercurrent to all of this, like this kind of like shrugging man bites dog, you know, well, we're all going to kill someone. What are you going to do? Kind of, you know, maybe that's what got cut. Maybe that, that was the flavor he was bringing. And then Streisand was like, no, we have to make her more like a sad Tupperware owner.
1: Uh, Yeah, maybe. I mean, at some point, someone, whether it was Streisand or the studio or Streisand and the studio linked arms to do it, was like, this is too dark. And I think all of the surrealist, fatalistic parts of it were, quote, ameliorated by much more conventional ideas about love and second chances. but then their way of doing this was to have an extremely long, awkward conversation that does nothing to advance anything. While mm. Mr. Cheryl played by the poor man's James Kahn, whose name I've already forgotten. Dobson, maybe Kevin Dobson. That's it. Um, that I just remember being like, Are, is this actually minute six of this exchange? They're just sitting around having beverages in the backyard and, No one's saying what they mean. There's no slapstick. No one has died. Like, why? Why is this happening? And kind of the whole movie is like that. I also have numerous, numerous questions about Dennis Quaid's character and how he was directed or if he was directed. But we'll get into that in a second. Do you have anything else on the movie generally? Or shall we
0: rate this the one thing that is a kind of through note of of technical incompetence that got to me is the adr in this is extremely bad Uh uh-huh the first scene we see after he throws after george throws the chair through the glass is him walking out through this enormous stone courtyard Which has all the, um, you know, it it echoes the way that the garage that Robert Redford is in echoes in All the President's Men. It is just, (laughs) it is the echoing. Robert
1: Redford always echoes, though. Does he just wear taps? Because the sting, everybody is
0: just tappity tap. I don't know. I don't think he echoes in Three Days of the Condor. I haven't seen that in a while. I I think, I mean, maybe there's like the one alley scene where, you know, the CIA attempts to whack him. But other than that, it's like I think it's a fairly echo-free film. But this—he's not a big dude; he shouldn't be creating this much reverb anyway. Sorry to yeah, your point. Not not as much displacement in Redford as you would hope. But th- this just <laughs> kind of felt like it fell into that like Alan Pakula like seventies like just echo paranoia sound mm. motif and and Foley work because. It's echoing louder than anything has ever echoed. You can hear his conversation perfectly, even though you being, it's being shot from like 100 feet away. Mm-hmm. Later, Cheryl's husband is yelling at the idiot Dalmatian. And he says something like, dog sucks. And like his mouth doesn't move, but the ADR is still, and it's still like thunderously echoey and he's just, his his mouth isn't moving. I mean, and that just, that's through the whole thing. It like pops up again. And after you've forgotten about it for a while, you're like, oh yeah, this wasn't overdubbed well.
1: That was another place where I remember thinking like, there's a whole story in that, like an ongoing battle with Dalmatians who... I don't know. I, I used to be a Pets editor at Yahoo AMA. And one of the things that you wound up sort of reblogging over and over again was how fucking terrible Dalmatians are, that they're like, they're high strung, they need more attention than a human kid, even firehouses don't like them. And I just remember thinking like, that would have been a really good opportunity for a runner. And the delivery of dogs dog sucks was... <laughs> was really funny. This yeah. this movie had all the tools, but it just like spread them all out on a towel on the kitchen table and then wandered off to write checks to Barbara Streisand.
0: And it's too bad. One other thing I will underline for the air of surreality surrounding these characters is that dog sucks moment takes place at a wake. That's held at the beginning of the movie for somebody whose relation seems somewhat nebulous. And like, I'm still not even, I can't chart how, how Freddie is distantly related to Cheryl. Like, I don't even know if I should be scandalized by maybe their cousin by marriage fucking. Who knows?
1: I think Cheryl's husband
0: and George's wife are fourth cousins. Well, that's what gets George to the house in the first place, is this wake, right? which is a barbecue cookout. The husband's just cooking hot dogs and stuff, and everybody's hanging out, and the only real indicator that you're at a wake is a black-clad children's choir singing hymns. In the yard. Like a a dais or something in the yard. It looks like they're on something in the yard, like a little platform. But it's yeah, it's like the sinking of the Titanic, but in barbecue form. And then... Were there two that dog sucks moments? Because I'm thinking of one at the end. No, it's it comes back. Okay. The the, that dog sucks is is there, and then like he's yelling at the dog. I think when uh, George and Cheryl are in that like interminable conversation you were talking about, where George goes to their backyard to confront them, but not to say like I'm in love with your wife and. We want to be together he just stands there to have a drink and be a dick for some reason and i think that's like the dog is in the background of that one okay all right let's rate the movie where were you yeah
1: i'm i'm not mad i'm just disappointed (laughs) (laughs) but but i'm really disappointed on the plus side it was only 87 minutes long i didn't have to be disappointed for a very long time but ooh, like I'm sorry, Mr. Hackman. This is a this is a two and a half.
0: So I've been wrestling with how to rate these because I've got that that sense of like being the first judge in a figure skating competition and rating the first person too high. Yeah. And then where do you go after that? Whereas that's now how I, I always feel like try I to get out, out of in front of it and make you do it first.
1: Zounds. Yeah. Well, you
0: know, I mean, I I keep like I think the previous two I've been like, well, that's a three out of 10, which is pretty ungenerous, but it's felt right every time. And it feels really right to give this a two, even though Gene Hackman doing a good job should be worth more. We're going to get to this in a second, but Quaid having a little more essential quadiosity should be worth more. Just the fact that they were willing to make a weird movie. I mean, it's, it's hard to see a weird movie these days, like outside of, Something that's released directly to streaming and, and has like a dismemberment in it. And, and you know, it, it, they're not doing anything. Yeah, it just should have been weirder if it had given itself up to
1: its own weird Belgian Bunuelian instincts.
0: <laughs> Maybe you're sniffing a five. Not today. Okay. So happier things. Quaid qua quaid. How much Quaid is in this movie? Uh, Did you like the amount of Quaid in this movie? The presentation of the Quaid in this movie. Were you left wanting more Quaid? How do you feel?
1: Um, I was not left wanting more of this particular Quaid. Because Quaid's Freddy, as written, appears to be the feral result of some kind of childhood traumatic brain injury of which his parents are aware, but there's no point expositing about it for the audience, apparently. (laughs) I mean, in Mom's case, because she's too busy wearing a horrible wig and boning William Kit Daniels, but that's a... Well, it's actually not a story for another time, but I'm not going to get into it, because...
0: uh, I'm feeling very aroused,
1: Michael. Oh, God. (laughs) But, Michael, why don't we ever use regular pursuit mode? So, I... Think we're. Su- well, why don't they? <laughs> <laughs> well, the other one's super. Okay, but then don't put a fucking button for regular pursuit mode. It's a waste of <laughs> console space. I am not a crackpot. <sighs> All right, speaking of people who uh. had brain hemorrhoids, <clears throat> this is our intro to Freddy, who I think we're probably supposed to think is just a stoner oaf. He's really smoking. He's smoking the stuff that was dipped in embalming fluid. Here's clip four.
0: Mike Gibbons just died. Mike. Yeah, I dropped dead at a PTA meeting. Well, how? I don't know. Brain hemorrhoid. Hemorrhage. Yeah. <laughs>
1: you you don't really get it from just the audio, but there is a um. Hackman is like button up your shirt up, and then he's doing it for Freddie. And there's like this fondness in the way that he translates Freddie to English. It's like fond, you know, <laughs> our stupid sonness right. to it. That again, here again, Hackman is doing way more and better work than this movie deserves. But Dennis Quaid throughout is giving this performance that I can only describe as grape ape. And I, <laughs> I, do, I don't, thank you. I don't understand. I just don't quite understand how that happened. I'm not sure it's the wrong choice and we'll hear it in a subsequent clip, but I just felt Like, this is all of a piece with this movie not having the courage of its bonkers convictions. There are a couple moments when you see that, like, wolfy smile and he, in the parts of this that are aspiring to be a sex farce, I guess he's cast okay, but this is not peak Quaid for sure. How did you feel about it? Because I I was just like, I found the whole thing obscured by pana barbera outlines
0: of yore this is a long way to get to this explanation but like as a start it kind of felt like the way that they were trying to the character they were trying to give george was sort of a put-upon member of the greatest generation looking at the shit that the world he built rot uh-huh. you know but yeah but you know freddie's age Puts him out of, you know, puts George out of contention for being in service in the Second World War or Korea, right? He's just, he grew up in this milieu and he's a product of it. So that kind of like, look at my wastrel son despair that I think what they were going for vibe wise doesn't really work, at least in the American timeline. And so instead, you just sort of get like this himbo kid that he loves because, you know, it's not legal to kill him. And he does have a job. You know, he's got... Yeah, he's a a gifted painter. I mean, a good enough painter to get him laid, apparently. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) um, Primer? So I hardly even know her. Oh. I'm so sorry. Don't get up. I'll fire myself. It's fine. But yeah, like the... The the kind of the atmospheric despair (laughs) on what Freddy fails to be is greater than the movie has earned. It's more like cultural baggage to kind of go like, we'll look at the kids these days. And I wonder if of the stuff that got cut, a lot of Freddy got cut because, you know, there's there's so little to play with here. And then there's a kind of, you know, there he, he goes heel because his dad, you know, says, I don't want you to see that woman anymore. He decides his dad must be sleeping with Cheryl. He tells his mom. He is the catalyst for the marriage ending. And then at the end, he's also clearly on his dad's side when they you know he, i guess he tells his dad we don't really know why he and george drive back to the house and catch mom in flagrante delicto not really but like in flagrante domestico with william daniels who has made the coffee in the house and is comfortable walking around in george's old robe and then we get that huge quade wink you know where where mom and William Daniels can't see it, just sort of like dad. I'm in on it with you. After he calms his dad down a little bit, and that wink was enough for me hmm. to like. Up until this moment, it had been like maybe a one quade or a two quade, but that got it up to about a four of ten for me because there is so much like charismatic quade. Like we're in on a, a pretty sweet gag here, just in that grin and that wink. And also there's a there's a kind of set piece, a comedic set piece where. George is working as a waiter at an Italian restaurant where they all sing opera and bring the food to people. And Freddie goes in there ostensibly as an antagonist to George and then winds up on his side, like singing along with them and having a great time. Well, because Mr.
1: Cheryl is also in there and they're like laying in wait for him and getting extremely drunk. And then he's hiding himself in the singing group and tables Mm -hmm. aren't getting their food. and. There, again, it's like, just turn this into some kind of like big slash noises off moment. I just couldn't do it. And I think a lot of stuff got cut. And then what was left couldn't be cut anymore to to give it some urgency, like in the editing. So, or it would have been
0: 65 (laughs) minutes instead of 87. So that's what you're left with. Um. Was that big grin like not enough for you? Or is that too little too late? Because that really did feel like I can, you know, the day is breaking. Warmth is coming. Quaid is coming. It helped.
1: It helped. But then there is this this sort of climactic scene where he comes home and really is like Mongo Mirpon in parent marriage. This acting is like pre-verbal and this isn't even caveman we don't deal with that until next time (laughs) so here's a clip it's a it's a little long but maybe you'll understand why i really struggled with finding this particularly uh, like quadey in its appeal dead
0: Wake up, you son of a bitch!
1: I saw, it's a time. I saw her first. What? Cheryl. I saw her first. Okay, Freddy, that's enough. I said I loved her. I said I loved her. I told you I loved her. Freddy, I told you leave your father alone. He's cheating on you. What? With my girl, Cheryl Gibbons.
0: Aunt Cheryl? She's not my oh, goddamn Jesus aunt. I love her. Jesus Christ. Well, oh, he's. Just... Hey. What are you gonna do? Hit me? George! George? Look, Helen, this is not true. Well, it's, it's not really true. You liar. Patricia, you better leave. Let's uh, make it ugly. Helen, Cheryl you want Gibbons? me to call the police? You both? Look what you're doing to your mother. Oh. You bastard! Oh.
1: It's like they're in two different movies. They're clearly yes. in the same scene. They're physically scuffling. But this sort of... um hulk smash and it's also supposed to play as though he's younger than 18 but he looks older than 18 because he was like he's 27 <laughs> yeah i it just it, it just didn't work for me but there were there were glimmers and this is getting closer to what we now automatically cast quaid for which is you know quaidiness This is getting closer to understanding what he does, but he, he is not correctly cast. So my score on this, and also he's like gone for long periods of time, even though the dialogue keeps trying to tell us that this is a conflict Mm -hmm. and they don't really make anything of this like, um, rusty from oceans 11 gag of him. Just like hoovering up whatever food is in front of him, even if it's not his house and it was not made for him. So, yeah, I mean, it's not enough Quaid. It's not the right Quaid. And the Quaid that we get is like, I don't like you have to have a shirt on under your overalls. This isn't a Dr. Pepper commercial. I'm going to (laughs) insist. This is low for me. This is a three.
0: You're not wrong about it being like two different movies. And that intensity from him is like that whole scene is just bizarre because I want to commit to okay, Freddie is mad. Freddie is a galoot. He has no idea that he doesn't possess this married woman and he doesn't know what's going on with his dad, but he's mad anyway. And then Hackman is playing it like Pepe Le Pew. He's just sort of like, you know, giving these kind of like quick comments to his wife and then sidestepping out of the way of the violence. And, you know, you, could, you expect him to just sort of like plink, plink, hopping down the stairs, I'm like, ah, chérie au revoir, you know, I'm like, just okay. <laughs> yeah, it had a, um, it reminded me of Robert Downey
1: Jr. in Zodiac, actually, these like little asides that it's like, you, you got the distinct sense in that movie that Downey was not entirely sure that this movie was not going to suck, and he was amusing himself with this performance, and then it wound up being good in part because of that performance, so yeah but it but with quaid just like eating around Mm -hmm. in the bedroom and punching walls and then mark green's mom from er comes in and is like you bastard like why are you here (laughs) like what your agent sucks turn around leave the scene don't come back here what was your
0: score for this one for his quaintiness, I think a four. I mean, mm. just on the the strength of that. I mean, it it really was like daybreaking at the end when yeah. you saw that grin. It was like, there, yeah, there he is. There's my boy.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't go quite that high, but I don't think a four is like outlandish. If you'd said like a seven.
0: No. no.
1: All right. Well, are, have are we, we done? <laughs> have we reached the bottom of the uh, fireman's pole of this? That is it for us today. Hallelujah. Yes, this podcast could go on all night long, but we don't have that kind of and money, so we're going to wrap it up. Next time on Quaid in Full, Ringo, Diane Chambers, Dixon from Alias, and DQ in Alan Smithy's Clan of the Cave Bear, or as it's more commonly known, Caveman. In the meantime, put on some overalls with no shirt and check out the show notes. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Quaid in Full Pod. Wondering when your favorite Quade joint is getting covered or want to advertise on a specific film or TV shows episode, DMs are open. Quade in Full is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jed Lund and edited by Jed Lund. Don't subscribe yet? Break off that endless conversation about backyard improvements and go sign up wherever you get your podcasts. And rate and review Quade in Full so other people can find it. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time. The life is too short.